We are looking at verses 14 to 16. And we want to begin this evening with a review of the position of these verses in the structure of the epistle as a whole. So once again, I've given you as the first sheet on your handout the overview of the structural outline for the entire epistle of Jude. Once again, we'll notice the symmetry with the section verses 5 to 16. Between the three Old Testament examples in verses 5 to 7 and three Old Testament examples in verse 11. This is a symmetry of negative illustrations or negative examples. Each of the characters or each of the uh, types of being that are in those sections have a negative moral character. Now, interestingly, there are also positive moral characters in this section of negatives. And you'll notice from the outline that they are sandwiched between the two negative, the, the two negative patterns of three. And it is also further significant that there are three positive figures in that positive antithesis or contrast with the negatives. You'll notice Michael in verse 9, Enoch in verse 14, two positive figures in this section in which we have uh, negative characters. But we also have a positive figure in verse 9 of Moses and a positive character of the Lord himself. In verse 14, we have a positive figure in Adam and a positive figure in the Lord again. Now, I don't want to make too much of that, but I think it's interesting that once again we see this triad or triplet pattern that the author, Jude, brother of our Lord, is used to using. He's accustomed to this triadic paradigm. He uses triplets repeatedly. He does it for purposes of emphasis, And in this case, I'm suggesting that he's doing it for purposes of symmetry. Therefore, the structure is symmetrical. It has a kind of neat rhetorical uh, parallelism to it. And uh, as we look at Enoch this evening, uh, we want to review that and note it and admire this uh, really uh, gifted (coughs) uh, rhetorical and structural uh, uh, writer. Jude is a very creative author. All right, now having said that, looking specifically now at the second section of that uh, material in the Redemptive Historical Sandwich, namely verses 5 to 16, we've observed in the bold face there that Jude begins in this second section, verses 11 to 16, with the first from Adam, And he ends with the seventh from Adam. He begins with the first from Adam, namely Cain, in verse 11. He ends with the seventh from Adam, namely Enoch. That once again is a kind of symmetry here. In other words, he's using an Adamic paradigm or a descent from Adam paradigm. He also uses, uh, with respect to Enoch and Michael, he also uses two figures 
that are associated with heaven. Now, Michael is obviously associated with heaven because he's the archangel. Why is Enoch associated with heaven? He was taken directly into heaven, okay, as Genesis 5 tells us and also as Hebrews 11 repeats and reminds us. All right, so the positive figures here also share something in parallel, something in common. Once again, we notice his uh, very carefully contrasted use of symmetry and parallelism as he moves on to the last figure in this section, namely Enoch and his prophecy in verses 14b and 15. All right, now let's take a look at the prophecy. Let's look at the text of uh, Jude 14b through 15. I've actually placed on your uh, outline, the second page in your handout, I placed the text in English translation of Jude 14b to 15, it's the second uh, paragraph in that uh, on that second page, and I placed uh, above it the translation of the text from First Enoch, chapter one, verse nine. Now, the reason I've uh, provided this quotation from First Enoch, which is an intertestamental work, perhaps. Uh, uh, there's still uh, a good bit of discussion about the dating of First Enoch, but we'll leave it at that. Uh, <clears throat> the reason I place it there is that virtually all the commentaries, conservative and liberal alike, argue that Jude's quotation of the prophecy of Enoch comes from First Enoch 1, verse 9. Now, as uh, you have those two texts in front of you in English translation, not in the original Greek, uh, they are tra- these are translations of the Greek text behind uh, these uh, uh, behind these versions. Uh, <clears throat> you will notice that I've indicated that there are 45 words in the Greek text of the first Enoch one statement, and there are 34 words in the statement from Jude 14b to 15. Now let's take a look at these two passages, and let's compare. Uh, what we see. Uh, First of all, you will observe the underlying portions of the quotations. You will notice that he will destroy all the ungodly in 1 Enoch 1.9 does not appear in Jude's citation. You will notice that the phrase all flesh does not occur in Jude's citation. The word all does, but not the word or the phrase, all flesh. And finally, you will notice that the expression, and regarding all that ungodly sinners have spoken against him, does not appear in Jude's quotation. Now, as you look at Jude and his quotation compared with First Enoch, you will notice that Jude has material which does not appear in First Enoch 1. In fact, the introduction to his statement, Behold, the Lord came with his holy myriads, is unique to Jude, does not appear in 1 Enoch 1. We admit that there are some phrases in 1 Enoch 1 uh, which are the same, but we also observe that there are differences, and Jude's citation is shorter than uh, 1 Enoch 1. 
Now, this English translation is an English translation, as I indicated, of a Greek text. The Greek text of Jude and First Enoch does not agree. I've highlighted the sections where it does not agree. There are some other minor differences of uh, disagreement, but my point here is that the Greek texts of both of these are not exactly alike. There is therefore no known copy of Jude's text in which he records the prophecy of Enoch, seventh from Adam. There is is no known copy of Jude's text except Jude 14b to 15 itself. That is the only extant copy of this prophecy of Enoch. There is no other primary document for this quotation. We may agree that in comparison with 1st Enoch 1.9, there are similar words in both quotations or both texts. There are some exact words in both quotations or both texts. But not every word is the same in both quotations or both texts. And I've highlighted with the underlining the specific differences. All right, so we observe that there is no primary document of Enoch's prophecy apart from what we find in the epistle of Jude itself. And the the quotation in 1st Enoch 1 is not an exact duplication or copy of what we find in Jude 14b to 15. Now, we ask the question next, what is the source of this prophecy? What is the source of what Jude quotes? We ask the question, is the source of this quotation in the Old Testament? Is this prophecy found in the Old Testament scriptures? There's only one answer. It's either yes or no. What's your vote? No, it is not. It is not found in the Old Testament. Jude does not speak in the Old Testament. I'm sorry, Enoch does not speak in the Old Testament. Enoch walks with God and he is taken by God. Genesis 5, to 24. There is no conversation recorded between God and Enoch in Genesis 5. And he, ha- he is mentioned nowhere else in the Old Testament. Well, if the source then of this prophecy is not in something Enoch said that's recorded in the Old Testament, what is the only other possibility for the source of this quotation? Pardon? You were speaking over one another. Bob? Inspiration? Inspiration. Uh, Pete? Revelation. Revelation. Okay, yes. The only other source is Enoch himself. Obviously, okay, because Jude records it by divine inspiration. Well, how did this come down? How was this transmitted? How is it that Jude is able to record it? 
And the answer to that question is that this is unknown. We do not know how this prophecy was transmitted. First Enoch knows some similar ideas, and First Enoch is variously dated from four to, to for the fourth century to the second century BC. <clears throat> Once again, as I mentioned before, there is no consensus as to the exact date of First Enoch. It is an apocryphal work that is, is outside of any canonical acceptance of inspired scripture. It is not accepted by the Jewish canon, not even accepted by the Greek canon. You will not find a copy of this in an apocryphal Bible. It is not the usual apocrypha between Malachi and Matthew that you'll find in a Roman Catholic Bible, etc. So it will not even appear there. You have to hunt it up in other sources, other extra-biblical sources. Well, since there is no known uh, source of transmission, and first Enoch knows some of the ideas, but not the exact statement that Jude is using here, is it possible that both Jude and first Enoch are dependent on an unknown third source? Is it conceivable that there is an altogether Tertium quid here, that is, a third document behind both First Enoch 1 and Jude 14b to 15. Let us consider that suggestion for a moment as we consider some of the books that are mentioned in the Old Testament for which we know nothing more than the names or descriptions. And we'll begin with the book of Yashar, which is recorded in Joshua 10.13 and 2 Samuel 1.18. We know that this book existed because it is mentioned in those two places in the Old Testament. What was in that book we do not know, that is in particularly in detail. It probably was a kind of chronological or historical record. But is it conceivable that Enoch's prophecy was recorded in that book? Ex-hypothesy, hypothetically speaking, it is conceivable that it was recorded there and that it was known and, hand, and, and that is known from that book and that quotation from that book was handed on down. First Enoch knew about it and Jude himself knew about it. That is possible. I'm not arguing that that is the case. I'm simply saying we're looking for suggestions at the how this prophecy, which appears in Jude 14b and 15, was transmitted between Enoch and Jude. Now, there's a second type of uh, book that's recorded, particularly in the Chronicles of the Old Testament, First and Second Chronicles. <clears throat> Books which are described as chronicles, that is, analytic records, Records of the kings of Judah and Israel. Visions. Now, there's an interesting suggestion. Books which recorded visions of Old Testament prophetic figures. Prophecies. Prophecies which are not part of the prophetic canonical revelation. Isaiah through Malachi. And Midrash. And that's a very interesting term as it appears in First in Second Chronicles 13.22. Because Midrash is Jewish explanation or Jewish commentary. These books then, which are mentioned in First and Second Chronicles, 
are books which potentially had contained visions and prophecies and interpretations of other passages which have since been lost. And it is conceivable that those books or those prophecies or those visions had a record of what Enoch had revealed or projected. And having known that, that that was in the oral tradition or in the memory of certain uh, portions of the Jewish uh, 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 belief or uh, the Jewish synagogue and temple, and it came down uh, into the first century that way. My point here is that these texts, which book of Yashar and these other books of First and Second Chronicles, which are mentioned in those passages which I have cited there, these texts testify to the fact that there is information, even prophecies and visions, recorded about biblical personalities and biblical events, information that has not survived, is not contained in the canonical Old Testament, and therefore it is a possible source for Enoch's prophecy. That prophecy was recorded, perhaps in one of these books, That prophecy was handed down, perhaps through one of these books, but it has not survived in a primary document other than the Epistle of Jude. That's how we know that it was authentically handed down and transmitted, or at least that's one of the ways we may know. It is, of course, perfectly possible that God revealed this prophecy directly to Jude and to nobody else. And that first Enoch 1 is simply fabricating on the basis of an ancient myth. It is perfectly possible. I think that's not likely, but nonetheless, it is possible. And there's another interesting possibility to consider. We remember that Jude is the Lord Jesus' brother. We have commented before that the Lord Jesus was raised in a family where the scriptures were discussed. We know that that is true because at age 12 in Luke's gospel, he is discussing the scriptures with the rabbis in the temple in Jerusalem, and he is putting them to shame. At 12 years of age, he was talking about things that they hadn't even dreamed about. Is it also possible that he was talking about things that had been revealed directly to him and which he shared with the family circle, one of which may have been this prophecy from Enoch? In other words, Jesus knew this prophecy He knew it because he's the eternal son of God, and he discussed this prophecy in the family circle so that Jude learned it from his brother or from the discussion of Enoch in the family circle when they were talking about the book of Genesis. After all, reading the Bible at home was a part of their lifestyle. That's what they did with their children. They trained them in the scriptures. And so, in this instance... This story may have been uh, uh, delivered by Jesus himself in the course of those family Bible studies and Bible discussions. All right, I'm throwing out a number of possibilities for the transmission of this prophecy from Enoch, which is recorded in First Jude, all of which do not depend upon the apocryphal First Enoch. That I regard as outrageous to suggest that this prophecy is dependent upon an apocryphal work. Now, I am very much a minority on this point. I can imagine a, the horror of various reform seminaries rising up and condemning me for saying this. 
But the evidence is not there. Look at the Greek text. Too much of this is different. So, don't believe the commentators. Looking for an intertestamental, Judaistic, apocryphal explanation for a text that they can't explain any other way. It's really not that hard. It's there in the Bible. It's there in the Bible because God wanted it there. It's there in the Bible because God wanted what Enoch had said revealed there. How it got there, there's a perfectly logical explanation for how he got there. At least it's reasonable. It's more reasonable than the irrational appeal to apocryphal Jewish nonsense. You want to read some nonsense? Read first, Enoch. Bizarre nonsense. Like many other of those intertestamental Jewish apocryphal works. Just weird stuff. Absolutely ugly weird stuff. So, please, don't talk to me about First Enoch 1 behind Jude 14b and 15. The evidence isn't there. There is no primary text behind it. There are too many differences in the first place and too many alternatives to justify it in the second place. I conclude then that the authenticity of Enoch's prophecy does not depend on 1st Enoch 1.9, but it depends upon its presence here in the God-breathed epistle of our Lord's brother. And as was said earlier, it is here because it is given by divine inspiration as a revelation of Almighty God from all the way back to the, the life of the man who was the seventh from Adam, namely Enoch the prophet, as well as Enoch the saint. you have any questions or comments? Go ahead, David. I am relying on my memory of 30, 40 years ago, but it seemed to me uh, he and Isaiah prophesied uh, Cyrus by name, and so my, he did. Question, my question is, what uh, extra-biblical uh, writings existed with respect to that prophecy? Is there uh, any uh, historical pattern of uh, extra-biblical writing uh forming a mirror of, of what the scripture prophesied. About Cyrus? Yeah. Not to my knowledge, and definitely not from the 8th century B.C. Yes, Robert? Um, your argument um, about so many differences in the Greek um, text here for Enoch that say, I'm not a lawyer, so I'm going to have to defer to David here. Um, that same argument can be turned around and say, yes, but there's an awful lot that is the same. Therefore, uh, there's got to be something there, uh, some like third source, like you were mentioning first. Um, I won't agree to that. Would David also agree that uh, that would be something that would be actionable? 
in court if, uh, <laughs> you see what I mean? I'm not explaining myself, brother, but um, yeah, would that be a, a, a line of argument? Uh, yes, you make argument in court, you can, I guess it'd be a case of the justum generis. Translate that for us, David. Well, um, we have a list of items, and, and you're considering something outside that list. You can say, well, it's like all those in the list. Okay. Thank you. I, I, I do agree, and I think there's a possible third source. And so that's the reason I'm using these Old Testament books that don't, we don't have any content from but are referred to. Art? Yeah, why is it better if it was a third source? Because the third source wouldn't be scripture either. And so they both be basing their statement on something that's not scripture. That is true. But you see, uh, even though it's not scripture, it could be an accurate recording of something that was given by inspiration or, or was actually authentically true. Remember that Paul quotes the pagan poets as accurate three times. Now, that doesn't make them inspired in their own right, but it makes it an authentic, accurate representation of what they said. So we could have what Enoch said recorded in some of these other books as an authentic record of what he had what he had declared. Go ahead. The contrast you're making is the first Enoch is not accurate. No, I do not think he is. Okay, there are too many differences. Yes, Randy? I might have missed it, but did you state whether the likelihood of Jude being aware of the Enoch document himself? No, I didn't address that because I think it's irrelevant. Right, right. In other words, I'm not tracing any dependence of Jude on Enoch at all. I'm trying to break I'm trying to break the whole scholarly uh, juggernaut on that point. Right. I can see you're not persuaded. No, no, I, I, I'm with you on that, but I, I don't know as whether you could prove our our view by the fact that he couldn't have possibly known about that. No, I, I, I admit that that's an argument from silence, but you see, I'm being catty enough to avoid the argument from silence. Okay. Well, I was just wondering if Jude was considered a prophet. If Jude he was a prophet. Jude is considered a prophet? Is he considered no, a prophet? No, he's not. Okay. No, he's not. Because otherwise, because it was talking about... He's a servant of Christ, as he describes in the first verse. Right. But there's no indication that he's giving any prophecy in his own right. Okay. All right, now, uh, yes. Now, here's my New Testament professor. Before my question, I just wanted to add, from what you said to Art, the difference is not only that, uh, that the Greek is different, but that Enoch, so much of what Enoch says is just false, that he's not a, he's not a reliable witness like... You know, these other animals that you referred to in the Correct. This one animal, I'm just curious, uh, you mentioned briefly that 2 Chronicles 13.22 refers to Midrash. Is that referring to the Midrash? I think that is the, yeah, I think it's the last text. Let me take a look at my New American Standard because that's where the translation occurs. Yes, it is in the New American Standard of Second Chronicles 13.22 that the ways of Abijah and his words are written in the treatise of the prophet Ido, and the word for treatise is in the Hebrew Midrash. I checked the Hebrew, and that's exactly right, which is very significant. Do you know if Midrash is a 
Well, regarding the fact that the Chronicles are probably post-exilic, okay, First and Second Chronicles written after the exile, when Midrashim is beginning to originate, I think it's interesting that the chronicler, whoever the author is, uses this term. I think it's a term which is consistent with his own era. So I don't think it puts it out of sequence or out of its own genre. But it's significant that it's in the Bible. In other words, the Hebrew term is in the Bible. Okay, uh, moving on to something less controversial. The light, the lightverter in this section, particularly in this prophecy. And once again, the German word lightverter means what? Anyone? Something motif. Ben. Essentially, means the word that leads. And it's the word that leads. Okay, okay. It means key word. Werter in German means word. Light means key or leading word. <clears throat> so we have a key word in this section. What is the key word? Ungodly. Ungodly. How many times does it occur? Four. four times, yes. In the Greek text, the word ungodly, which is both a noun and a verb, is one verb form of it, <clears throat> is uh, the key word in this section. All right, now it's four times, not three times. He goes one more than his usual triplet. And I'll comment on it in a moment. It means ungodly, but it has the alpha privative on it. <clears throat> now, you remember what the alpha privative means? means not or a negative. Here I'm going to indicate without. So here it is without God. Ungodly is without God. All right, now let's notice how he arranges these uh, phrases which use the word all and ungodly four times in this section. Let's notice how he arranges them in reference to something we noted in the quotation from First Enoch 1.9. If you glance back up to the top of the page, you will notice that I underscored the phrase all flesh. You will notice that Jude does not use all flesh. The Greek of First Enoch 1 is all sukikos, all flesh. Jude does not use that term. So the question before us is, when he refers to all in this section, and he uses that term four times, is he talking about all flesh, as First Enoch 1 does? In other words, all mankind generically, which is what First Enoch is saying. All flesh means all of existing humanity. Is that what Jude is doing? Well, let's take a look at what he does in order to answer that question. First of all, he uses a prepositional phrase in the Greek at the beginning of this sequence, which he uses at the end of this sequence, a prepositional phrase, the exact duplicate kata plus 
the preposition at the beginning and kata plus the preposition at the end. After that preposition, he uses the word pantone, which means all. All at the beginning with no additional explanation. Then all ungodliness, all ungodly works, all things ungodly done, or done in an ungodly manner, as on the English versions translated. All harsh speech, and then the prepositional phrase against, which occurs again, and ungodly sinners as the last two words of the verse. What's he doing? He is arranging a symmetrical inclusio with the two prepositional phrases against plus all and against plus him. In fact, he is explaining by his inclusio and his symmetrical positioning of that inclusio by means of the prepositional phrase, he is defining who the all are. Who are they? They are all who are against him. Who is the him? Bob? Who are the ungodly against? They are against God. So against him, being against God is the all whom he is talking about. Is he talking about all mankind? He is not talking about all mankind. He is talking about all the ungodly mankind. So, first Enoch is saying more than Enoch said. First Enoch is saying that Enoch said he was prophesying against all flesh. That's not what Enoch said. Enoch said he's only prophesying against all the ungodly of all flesh. Keeping in mind that the next section of this epistle of Jude is going to talk about the godly and not the ungodly. It is certainly true that God is not going to come in judgment against the godly. Is he? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. The judgment that we will stand in is not a judgment of fear or dread or surprise. It is a judgment of vindication, not a judgment of potential condemnation. We will be vindicated alongside of our Lord Jesus, who will be vindicated before the whole cosmos. And every knee will bow, including those who are going into hell, hellish judgment. But we who are not going into hellish judgment will stand alongside the Lord, our Savior, and we will be vindicated along with him. He will receive the glory and honor, which is due his name, for he is perfectly righteous. And even Satan will bow his knee and say, yes, you are perfectly righteous, but I hate you. And I will hate you forever. But he will still bow the knee. All right, so the point here is, that first Enoch does what we would expect an apocryphal work to do. It's got bad theology. It's got bad theology. The prophecy of Enoch was not a prophecy of God judging all flesh. It was a prophecy of God judging all the ungodly flesh, which is exactly what Jude says that prophecy read, or how it read. 
All right, now notice one more other, one, one other thing here. The inclusio in this frame, which is an inclusio of a prepositional phrase, explicitly in the Greek text, the inclusio here not only defines or exegetes or is apexegetical of who the all are at the beginning of the inclusio, they are all who are against him, that is God himself, but he puts a stinger at the end of it. In other words, he makes you understand exactly who he's talking about. The last two words in this phrase, in this verse, are ungodly sinners. God is coming to judge all, all whom, all ungodly sinners who are against him. He's not coming to judge those who are united to his son by faith, joined to him by justifying righteousness, imputed with his own perfect, pristine perfection. No. Going to come to vindicate those. Going to come to declare those right with his son who is right with him. And consequently, this passage from Jude is a passage about the fearful judgment of the ungodly. Those who are without God and against God. Those who are sinners, ungodly, and depraved. Those who refuse not only God himself but reject the word of God. The specification then of the way Jude has arranged this record of Enoch's prophecy is a specification which includes a structural arrangement of the vocabulary in such a way that you know that when you read First Enoch 1, it says all flesh, that's wrong. That's not what Enoch prophesied. Another reason to abandon the apocryphal document as the background to Jude 14b and 15. All right, any questions about that? Uh, go ahead, Scott. Uh, do you have an argument to present against this possible objection? If someone were to say, well, my first Enoch may mean all flesh in the same sense that Paul refers to all men. That Christ is the interceder between all men, we take that to be a reference to all nations, people, every place. Is it possible that first Enoch is referring to the fact that God is going to judge the world universally and not speak about every individual? Well, I, I think first Enoch does believe that God is going to judge all the world universally, all flesh, but, that, but Enoch is talking about God judging it only narrowly and particularly. In other words, he's focusing upon the judgment of God upon the ungodly, not upon the universal all flesh who, <clears throat> who are uh, either saved or unsaved. Okay. So but is there anything in the language there, judgment against all, because you do have this repeated a couple of times, maybe you can make the case that this is each and every, and this all is each and every, in first year. Uh, yes, um, I, I don't think he's being epigenetical there. I think I think he is being wrong there. <laughs> in, a, in other words, I think he's gotten carried away with uh, uh, Jewish particularism. Oh, you think he's he's he's, he's driving that Israel will be saved? Well, potentially. At that point, Israel isn't around. Potentially. Well, Israel is still around, fourth to fourth to second century BC. No, no, I meant at the time of Enoch. No, that is true. But, but 
But in putting into his mouth exactly. a prophecy that he's going to judge every single Gentile? Is that your Exactly. Thought? That kind of thing. Okay. What is typical of Jewish intertestamental apocalyptic. Okay. David, you had a comment? Well, um, so Jude is saying that Enoch said that uh, all ungodly will be judged. And it, I'm wondering if, how much of a parallel we can make when the Apostle Paul tells us that we shall judge angels. If we wouldn't be judging the elect angels. No, we're going to be judging the damned angels. Correct. We're going to stand in the judgment along with Christ and be involved in that declaration of condemnation. We're not going to be pronouncing it, but we're going to be standing alongside of it, supporting it. Well, I think that will make the angels quake. Uh, indeed. Even Satan himself knows his doom is sure. He quakes at every <clears throat> redeemed sinner. All right, now there's another thing to note here uh, as we go on to our break. A comparison between the judgment as it's recorded here in verse 14 and the Greek word that is used and the fact that we've already had that word used up above in verse 6. Where it refers to whom? The fallen angels. The fallen or damned angels. Now, who does it refer to in verse 14? Pardon? These men. These men? Uh, no. He's coming with whom? Holy. Verse 14. The Lord is coming with whom? Saints. Holy. Holy. Who are they? Angels. The angels. What kind of angels? Good angels. Good angels. The unfallen angels. Ah. So we have a contrast here. Between the judgment which has been which has been uh, uttered against the fallen angels and a judgment which is going to be uttered against the ungodly, but <clears throat> the unfallen angels are not part of it. They are going to be part of the company of <clears throat> that declaration, but they're not going to be involved in the judgment itself in the sense that it's going to fall upon them. So. We have a contrast here between the judgment of angels who are apart from God, namely verse 6, or without God, and here the no judgment of the angels who are with God or gathered together with him as a great heavenly host. This contrastive element once again in Jude's rhetoric and Jude's symmetry. Even here, then, the angelic personality, the angelic beings are brought into the discussion in such a way as you see that with respect to Enoch's prophecy, they are outside the realm of the fallen or damned angels and the judgment which will fall upon them. In fact, a judgment for which they've been reserved. There is no judgment for those angels who are coming with God according to Enoch's prediction.
This prediction is a theophany. What do we mean by a theophany? It may be a new word for some of you. What's the word theophany mean? Vision of God. An appearance of God. Theophanes. An appearance of God. Like he appears in fire and smoke at Mount Sinai. He appears in a fiery chariot when he takes Elijah up into heaven. An appearance or manifestation of God. Here Enoch is projecting a divine theophany. Namely, God himself is going to come. A prophecy of the Lord coming in judgment, in theophonic judgment. He's going to appear with his angels. And he's going to set the court of justice. Now, this is similar to a Christophany. So what's a Christophany? Pre-incarnate vision of Christ. Not a pre-incarnate vision of Christ. Manifestation. Manifestation of Christ, okay? And when is Christ going to be manifest? When When he comes with his angels, correct? Matthew 25, 1 Thessalonians... Second uh, Thessalonians 1. So the parallel between the theophany and the Christophany, referring to the future coming of God for judgment. The Matthew 25 citation is from the Olivet Discourse. Is it conceivable that Jude had heard his brother's Olivet Discourse? Is it conceivable that having heard it, he was reminded of this prophecy of Jude? And he knew that even as Jude had, even rather as Enoch had predicted this coming of God with his angels for judgment, so Christ is claiming the same prerogative in Matthew 25 with the Olivet Discourse. A future coming of God in the person of his glorified Son. And yet, a future coming with a present realization. A present realization in the first advent incarnation of God, namely God the Son, who had come in the flesh. He had come to set fire upon the earth. He had come to bring judgment into all of human society. It was not the final coming of judgment. That would come at the end of the age, when he will then come with his angels. He came at first without his angels. He will come a second in the company of his angels to bring down the curtain on the history of the universe and the cosmos. All right, so what Jude is proclaiming is going to become that much fuller, that much richer when Christ takes up the same motif, namely the coming of God for judgment. But this time we know it's the second person of the God. It's the incarnate son, resurrected and glorified Son of the Father, who is going to come with his angels. Enoch, anticipating what Christ himself is going to complete. Enoch, not seeing the full picture, because he can only peer behind the veil. But nonetheless, he sees this manifestation of God's glory, marching forth to judgment, which we now know will be in the person of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, at the end of the age. Any questions before you take a breather? We're now ready for verse 16. 
verse 16. And the uh, word these in that verse referring to whom? The ungodly sinners. sinners. More appropriate to this particular epistle, who are the these in this epistle of Jude? The The ungodly in the church? Mm -hmm. Dick, what were you going to say? These are the intruders, that is correct. These are the intruders who have been dividing this congregation or insinuating themselves into it. And you will notice that he places that demonstrative pronoun here at the end of this section of analysis of ungodly individuals and examples in order to make his point that these are like they are. These are without God as they were without God. So that that light verter, the word godless, is describing everything characterized by the phrases or the words in this 16th verse. Each one of the phrases or words in the 16th verse is a particular instance of ungodliness. That is, a being without God, against God, apart from God, against his word. Even as the previous illustrations from verse 5 on have indicated, and as the character of the intruders has been revealed and described in between. So this is not a new section. This is a section which is simply summing up or providing a kind of characteristic conclusion which describes the personality, the attitudes, the inner heart, the uh, ungodly nature and mind and activities of those who have been uh, described since he mentioned that the intruders have broken into this community. They are grumblers or murmurers. Now, why does he use that phrase? Grumblers, murmurers. These are the enemies from within. Yes, these enemies from within are grumblers. Why does he use that word? Complainers. They're complainers, yes. Randy? People are generally discontent about the way God. From within the text. From within the text, David? Well, I was going to say, is it an illusion to the Exodus generation? Exactly. It's an illusion to the grumblers of the Exodus generation, whom he's already referred to in verse 5, has he not? Any other grumblers? How about those in verse 6? Yeah, Moses and Aaron. The congregation of Israel grumbled against them. Is that in verse 6? Hold on to that, Dick. 
with angels that didn't like God the way God did things. So were they grumbling against the way God did things? Were they murmuring? That's why they got kicked out? Were of they murmuring place. against God to the point of rebellion? Well, yeah. I mean, just like Israel in the wilderness was murmuring against God to the point of rebellion. Yeah. Yes, and they got banned from the promised land. Right. And the angels got kicked out of the promised land or out of the heavenly land. Right. Right. So once again, notice he is picking up on the characteristic of those who have illustrated this nature of these intruders. He's going back to reinforce. <clears throat> yes, just like I told you about that generation of the world, the grumblers and murmurers, complainers, just like the angels, grumbling, murmur, complaining against God. Now, Dick, Moses and Aaron, what incident was that? Well, that was a, uh, well, actually it happened twice. And, uh, but it was about... Uh, within this text, within the epistle of Jude, where do you see that? Yes, I heard it. Who said it? Kay. Margie? It was Margie or was it Kay? Margie's taking credit. Yes, it's Korah. It's the rebellion of Korah, Nathan, and Abiram in verse 11. Murmuring and complaining. Rebelling against lawful authority. All right, so <clears throat> these cases, that is these examples which illustrate this behavior and personality which he's drawn out of the Old Testament. Now he's summing them up and reflecting on it. It's a mirror pattern. He's reflecting back upon these individuals or upon these cases. Now, the second phrase, they find fault. They're malcontents. Malcontents. Does that apply to the wilderness generation? Yes. Certainly does. What about the angels? Yes, yes. yes the fallen angels. What about Korah, Nathan, and Abiram? Yes. yes. <laughs> Once again, a phrase that reflects upon the use of illustration that he's drawn from the Old Testament in the previous section. Those who find fault here are placing the blame on others. It's always somebody else's fault. Okay? It may even be God's fault, so they blame God. They are malcontents. Not content with the providence of God. Not content with their lot in the world. And so they find fault to pass the blame to some others or an institution, or a government, or whatever the case may be. This is an attitude, then, of grumbling and then false accusation. Notice he's expanded upon what we might call just whining, incidental whining. Now they're not just incidentally whining, now they're bearing false witness against others. They're blaming others for their own sinful accountability. Then he uses the term they follow after their own lusts. Now let's begin with the word lusts. What does this word mean in the Bible? Erythemia. 
Is that the word? Uh, epithemia. Okay. Passion. Passion. Sinful desire. Sinful desire. That I like. Sinful desire. Okay. Factiousness. Doesn't it mean factiousness too. Does it mean what? Factiousness. Factiousness. Now, if that was your desire, yes, it could be factiousness. <clears throat> but the word, the word basically leaves, means sinful desire or evil desire. It's Augustine's nice word, concupiscence, which has disappeared since the King James has disappeared. <laughs> but I like that word, concupiscence. Yeah. <clears throat> evil desire, sinful desire, <clears throat> which may manifest itself in sexual immorality, which we've already had detailed here in the licentiousness <clears throat> of uh, verse um, Remind me here, I remind myself of the uh, licentiousness of verse 4. <clears throat> and <clears throat> But more generically, it's what Paul refers to as covetousness. That is, <clears throat> an evil desire. Wanting that which is not yours. Wanting that which does not belong to you. Wanting that which belongs to God alone or which God has given to uh, others and not to you. So this generic definition of lust does not necessarily mean sexual lust in every occurrence. Well, does it possibly mean sexual lust in this occurrence? And if so, what? Very good. As Margie pointed out, it's a reflex. Once again, it's reflecting back upon something he said earlier, an example he's used from before, namely the lust of Sodom and Gomorrah. That is the unnatural lust of homosexuality. But what about Cain? Cain following his own evil desire, his own lust. Lois, you're nodding your head back there. Build his own way of, of worshiping God the way he wanted to. Okay, what else? What other evil desire is he following? What does he do? Oh. Instead of having a blood sacrifice, is that what you're talking about? No. no. What does he do? Good. What does he do? I don't know. What does he do to his brother? Oh, yeah. yeah. Is that an evil desire? Yeah. Yeah, it was too obvious, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we we understand that the murderous desire that emer- emerges from Cain's heart is an evil desire. It's a lust. It's a lust to kill that individual. In other words, the act of murder is not a neutral act. The act of murder arises from an evil heart, an evil disposition, an evil nature, an evil lust, sinful lust, sinful desire. All right, we could also say that about others here, but those are the two that would uh, illustrate that pattern of lust both sexually and non-sexually, Cain and Sodom and Gomorrah. Arrogant mouths, or they speak arrogantly. 
verse 8. Very good. They revile angelic majesties. Anybody else? Verse 6. Verse 6. Potentially, yes. How about verse 9? Satan have an arrogant mouth? Indeed he does. All right, so speaking arrogantly may refer to this incident in which the devil is disputing with Michael over the body of Moses. He has the arrogance to dispute with God or dispute with God's messenger over Moses' body. So these intruders have the same disposition. They are arrogant. They have mouths which speak out of their auteur, as you would say in French, out of their high and mighty position or their high and mighty self-esteem. They have a kind of pride which is insufferable. The world begins and ends with them. They have an ego which is bigger than the universe. They are arrogant. And, of course, they're never wrong. And even if they're wrong, they'll tell you that they were right when they were wrong. And they can keep telling you that over and over again. Even when they've been proved to be wrong, they're still right. Because they've redefined wrong as right. They've changed the whole narrative and the whole vocabulary. They are arrogant. And finally, they're flatterers. Flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. Who may he have in mind here in the previous section? Balaam. Very good, March. This is Balaam. Flattering the children of Israel in order to gain an advantage. What advantage? The advantage of money. Flattering the children of Israel in order to get that money that he had turned down from Balak. But milking the congregation of Israel for it. So he promotes the prostitution of Baal Peor. He leads them to worship idols. It's almost as if he's taking a commission from his post-blessing Israel work on the plains of Moab. And that reflects upon this congregation in part. We attempted from time to time through these studies to create a kind of social profile of this congregation to whom Jude is writing. We think they were Palestinian Jews converted to Christianity. We think they may have been somewhere near Nazareth where he probably had a congregation himself along with his brothers. Probably, perhaps in Syria, but still a Palestinian Jewish-based congregation. If these intruders are flattering people to gain an advantage, and that gain is like Balaam's gain, namely, it is a financial advantage, 
Do we have a congregation to whom he is writing that is fairly well off financially? In other words, they are ripe for the plucking. These shameless self-promoters can charm the money out of their wallets. They are then a target for these intruders because they are somewhat wealthy. And these intruders are attracted like Balaam was attracted to money, and therefore they're going to use all their wiles to derive a financial benefit from this Christian community. Ah, we don't have anybody around that does that in the 21st century, do we? We don't have anybody that's exploiting Christians for the sake of financial gain, do we? Yeah, you believe that? I got a bridge for sale. All right. This is not a sin which is peculiar to the first century. There are people that prey upon wealthy Christians. And there are wealthy Christians who prey upon wealthy Christians. There are Christians who want to be wealthy, and they prey upon other wealthy people. It's a very difficult thing to live with great wealth. And one of the difficulties is that you really can't tell who the good guys and the bad guys are all the time. You really can't tell who are the users and who are not. It's a difficult thing. It takes a lot of wisdom, a lot of prayer. There's nothing evil in money itself. Jesus doesn't condemn it. The love of it is condemned. The manipulation and the use of it for power purposes is condemned. In other words, you've got money so you can call the, call the, 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 the tune. You control the purse strings so you can threaten everybody around you. You don't do what you want, I'll cut off your salary. Yeah, I've been through experiences like that. I know Christian guys that have got money that have threatened other Christians like that. They're, t- they're tyrants. They're brutal tyrants. But I've known some very godly wealthy people, too, very wealthy people. You wouldn't have known that they were wealthy. That's how godly they were. They didn't advertise it. They used it to serve the kingdom of God. They did it quietly. They didn't brag about it. They didn't put themselves up on TV. They wouldn't make themselves poster boys. I'm very suspicious of those kind of people. People who are always advertising the fact they've got money. Well, anyway, in this case here, Jude himself is alerting this congregation to the fact that they are in danger of being used for the advantage of others. Used for the advantage of people who want to use them. Christianity and the church is not immune from this. The users in the Christian world. Those who are abroad in positions of leadership and influence who want to extend that power over others in order to use them for their own gain, their own advantage. It is an insidious kind of bastard Christianity. And what is so insidious about it is it is completely contrary to Christ and the pattern of servanthood. He has set us free. He has set us free from being used by others 
And he has set us free from using others. If you're in a Christian relationship where you're being dominated by others, beware that person doesn't understand the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ who came to serve and lose his life, not use his life to dominate others. It's often said in sports that users are losers. It is true in Christianity as well. The users are the losers. But they pray, they pray upon the trusting and the defenseless. They pray upon the innocent and the humble. They pray upon the weak. They do it because they can get away with it and they know it. And that's exactly what Jude is writing about with this phrase. He's warning this congregation that there are people in their midst who are going to use them for their own advantage, even use them for financial advantage, even use them to get ahead in the Christian world in terms of their money and their wealth. Well, this has been a fairly discouraging evening of looking at all the negatives particularly the negatives of the ungodly. And they are abundant, are they not? But there is another side to this, which we anticipate with the language of the rest of the epistle, and in fact, with that which is on the other side of these negatives in verse 16. There is joy with contentment. It is that which Jude wishes for this congregation in the doxology of verse 24. The joy of the contentment in which you know that Christ presents you without fault before the glory of his Father in heaven. That you do not belong to this group of ungodly intruders but that you belong to those who have been vested by the gift of grace with the joy of the Lord Jesus because he has caught you up into the presence of his glory by his wonderful redeeming and resurrecting life and love. This congregation stands in the heart of that central life. Not unto ungodliness, not under taking advantage of others, but unto the joy of the Lord, which comes out of the presence of glory and the heavenly light and the glory of the Lord that shines full in the face of the Savior Jesus, whose birth we will celebrate this month. Now, An attendant quality of this joyful contentment is the love for God. Not the ungodly hatred of God, but the love of God. And not the ungodly contempt for his word, but the love for the word of God. The godly character is the character who loves the Lord his God and loves the word 
of God is Lord. That is his meat day and night. And that humble believer is also a desirer of virtue, not a desirer of evil, not a desirer of lust, but a desirer of that which pleases the Lord. This community has in its midst those who love virtue, love what is good, and seek to please the Lord. They are ashamed of their sins. They seek to avoid the sinful life and the sinful desires. They're very careful about how they walk in the face of an ungodly world and before an ungodly culture because they want to live before the face of God. What pleases the Lord is what pleases me. What pleases the Lord is what I want to watch. What pleases the Lord is what I want to see. What pleases the Lord is what I want to read. What pleases the Lord is what I want to do. That is what pleases me. No, it will not be in perfection. That day is coming at glorification. But insofar as by the grace of God I am able to do so in this life, that is what will please me, namely what pleases my God, not the lusts of my own evil desires, sexual or otherwise. These are not arrogant people. These are not people full of themselves. These are not people who always have to be in front of a TV camera. These are not people who always have to be a celebrity. These are not people who always have to be on TV once a day. Sometimes twice or three times a day. You can't get rid of them on TV. You can't turn the TV on without seeing them. They're always on TV. These are selfless people. Humble and unassuming. Whose life is the quiet, patient, godly life of walking in the light of the age to come. And finally, these folks are not flatterers. They show no partiality to others because God shows no partiality to others. They treat all impartially. God is no respecter of persons. Romans 2.11, Galatians 2.6, Ephesians 6.9. There's a trinity of emphasis upon that. Almost as if each person of the Godhead is represented in this impartial declaration of the Apostle Paul. If God shows no partiality, if God plays no favorites, then neither do I. Neither do we. We are not in the game of advancing others because we like them better. In the Christian community, we serve one another equally. This doesn't mean that there's no distinction in office or role, but the attitude of service in that office and in that role is to treat all impartially. We play no favorites. We have no groups in the church which hold us in their pocket. 
The word of God is our standard, not who's got the most money and not who's got the most influence and not who makes the most noise in the congregational meeting either. We've come to serve one another in and through Christ Jesus. If we start looking at ourselves, we're not looking steadfastly at Jesus. Keep your eyes on him. Jude's eye was upon his brother resurrected and glorified. And he wanted the eyes of this community to be on that glorified son of God brother whom he loved, whom he trusted and believed upon, and whom he wrote this epistle to glorify. It is the centrality of Christ which is before you in this season of the year. May it remain with you into 2014. Shall we pray? Lord, it is easy for us to reflect upon the ungodliness of those who have been used as examples by Jude. It's easy for us to distinguish ourselves from them. Oh, no, we are not like they are. But we are reminded, Lord, that unless Christ be central to our whole life, our heart, mind, soul, and deeds, then we are too prone to be drawn into the ungodliness of those whom Jude warns his readers against. Father, forgive us for being too full of ourselves and humble us by the great incarnation of humility. No, not an idea, but the person of your Son, a living human being, God and man, humble, devout, lowly, seeking to serve you out of love for your will and word, and going about to draw us into that very wonderful pattern. May we not get too far away from it, particularly at this season of the year with all the hubbub and the busyness and the beauty of this season. We rejoice in the pleasantness of the Christmas time, wonderful friendship, fellowship, renewal of memories, cards, letters, greetings, all of it a wonderful experience of kindness and also love. But do not draw us away from the love of the lover who came to redeem us from all our inherent ungodliness by nature and to set us godly in Christ Jesus for his glory for his honor for the service to his name even as Jude his brother named himself the bond slave of Jesus we go as your bond slaves into the new year, 
and pray that you will hold us, hold us by the hand through each step of each day for the sake of Christ by the work of your spirit. Amen. See you all next year, as they say.